The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. In 2019, an article in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience described a study in which parents and adolescents were given the phrase teenage brain and asked what ideas or traits they associated with it. Most responses focused on negative traits, things like irresponsibility, moodiness, and risky behavior. Now, this probably won't surprise anyone who has parented, taught, or been an adolescent. The turbulence of this time in life is the stuff of countless movies, novels, blog posts, and therapy sessions. But what parents, educators, and the public don't realize is that adolescence extends far beyond the teenage years, approximately from the ages of 12 to 25. It's a critical period of development when young people are urgently searching for a sense of meaning and identity. It's also a time when the brain is primed to be rewired and reshaped. So we have an enormous opportunity during adolescence to mitigate the impact of earlier traumas or deprivation, and more importantly, the openness and plasticity of the adolescent brain offers educators a massive opportunity to set young people up for success in early adulthood and beyond. The project of mass education was birthed in Europe during the early 1800s, and past episodes have discussed how the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview that dominated in Europe at the time led to the factory model of schooling. Children were empty vessels, and the purpose of school was to fill them with the knowledge they'd need to take their prescribed place in society. The system was focused on inputs and outputs, ranking and productivity. The child's life at school was driven by the curriculum, and no thought was given to any talents, interests, or needs that fell outside that structure. This model became the template for America's public education system a century later, and it's still the dominant model today. We sort students by age, focus on grade-level standards, and expect all children to learn the same content through standardized curricula. In doing so, we rarely take into account the diversity of students' developmental trajectories and learning needs. And when it comes to teens and older adolescents, things are looking particularly bad. The longer students spend in the formal education system, the less engaged they are. Even before the COVID pandemic, America had some of the highest rates in the developed world of stress, depression, self-harm, bullying, suicidal ideation, and violence among young people. If we want to design educational systems that nurture and support young people as whole human beings, we first need to understand how human development actually happens. We then need to use this knowledge to create the kinds of experiences, settings, and interactions that will allow young people to grow optimally and in sync with the demands and strengths of their particular stage of development. As an example, when researchers demonstrated that the years between birth and five are critical to the healthy development of young children, policymakers and communities pushed for bigger investments in supporting prenatal health, 
helping new parents learn how to nurture infants and toddlers, and increasing access to high-quality early childhood experiences. According to our guest today, the same thing needs to happen for adolescents, which has been a highly misunderstood and under-leveraged period of human development. Dr. Mary Helen Imordino-Yang is Professor of Education, Psychology, and Neuroscience at the University of Southern California's Rogers School of Education. Until recently, cognitive neuroscience focused largely on cognitive processes like memory, attention, and problem-solving. Very little attention was paid to the role of emotions and social experiences in shaping cognition. Mary Helen set out to change that. In studying the interplay between adolescents' brains and their social environments and experiences, she found that the most influential variable during this period is how adolescents learn to think, rather than what knowledge they attain. Her research found that when adolescents can engage in deep, reflective learning that enables them to connect the content they're learning with their developmental drive to build their own identities, to build a sense of purpose and meaning, when they can begin to see themselves connected to the past, the present, and the future, the architecture of their brains changes in ways that directly impact their success in early childhood. In fact, the connections made inside the adolescent brain through this kind of learning are more predictive of success in early adulthood than factors like IQ, parental education level, or socioeconomic status. Her research suggests that if we want to truly leverage the brain's plasticity and malleability during this period, we need to profoundly shift the kinds of learning experiences we design for young people during adolescence. This would include middle school, high school, and post-secondary education. This is the first in a series of episodes focusing on human-centered approaches to learning in youth development and post-secondary spaces, and Mary Helen seemed like the perfect guest to ground us in the science. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mary Helen. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. So I know that your work and research has been to integrate science and neuroscience in, uh, in particular into education. But before we dig into your work, I'd love to start with you as a person, right? <laughs> who we are in our own journeys shape uh, where we go and what we do. Yeah. And I've heard you speak a lot about your own experience as a student. So how mm-hmm. did that shape your interest um, in these issues? Yeah, uh, it's hard to know how far back to go. I mean, I was one of those kids who really didn't like school, um, as a little kid in the traditional public school. I I mean, I just never felt at home there. I never felt like anything that I was doing really reflected anything about what I was good at or how I thought about the world. And I just was constantly trying to escape. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to overstate the amount of relief on Friday afternoons and the amount Mm. of dread on Sunday evenings I had all through elementary and uh, elementary school and through sixth grade. And I was too little to really put it into words, but I just, school was just not a place where I could go and be safe. And, um, you know, but at the same time I was running an entire, like, you know, with my siblings, with my, you know, like I, I was living in the woods and basically in, in, a, in our house. And we had a whole farm up there where my parents, ironically, I mean, they were raised in, you know, inner city Detroit and Yonkers, right? But they decided they were going to start a farm and have their kids like run it. And we were raising a lot of our own food and everything. And I was, I had a, a 
really cheap pony that we had to take care of. And, and I was teaching horseback riding lessons to all the neighborhood kids. And I was basically running a little business there. And, uh, you know, I was just doing a whole bunch of really what you, I can now as an adult look back and say, were really self-directed kinds of activities. And I really excelled at those, but they weren't the kinds of things that felt relevant to school. They were just a completely different universe than school. It wasn't until I was really far along in college, like my you know, that was my junior year. I had this tension between fields being very, very interested in the natural sciences. I, in college, you know, I majored in French literature for a lot of strange reasons. Um, but uh, but I, I, I did that in part because it freed me up to take a whole lot of science. I basically took one year of every science that I was interested in. I took a year of biology and a year of physics and a year of ast astronomy and astrophysics and a year of of uh, human anthropology and, and physical anthropology, right? Like just in a year of psychology, like all these different sciences and was juxtaposing those together and trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do with my life? So I started applying to, to be a teacher because I thought, well, I have a whole bunch of science background, uh, you know, from college. Maybe I can, maybe I can, I can, I can teach for, for a year or something or two, three years. And, and support myself that way. I had never been interested in going back into a traditional school context like that. I had never been interested in being a teacher or, you know, once I was done with K-12, I was out of there. Um, uh, but I managed to convince the Department of Education in Massachusetts to give me provisional certification to, to teach. And it turned out to just be an absolutely fascinating couple of years of my life. It, it just by chance, the school I was working in um, was one of the most diverse in the U.S. at that time. Hmm. It was right after the Rwandan genocide. Um, there were kids coming into that um, suburb of Boston from literally all over the world, refugees and immigrants from all over the world. From There were kids from Haiti, kids from Malaysia, kids from Myanmar, kids from Eastern Europe. They were all landing in my classroom and looking around in shock, like, how did we get to Massachusetts and trying mm -hmm. to figure out who they were and why they look different and why they eat different. And, you know, and the whole of that sort of adolescent identity building in the context of complex scientific thinking. You know, how do you get people to engage with the phases of the moon at the same time as with each other became a completely fascinating problem to me. And I just completely fell in love with working with kids in that age group and with trying to see how they came to understand themselves, how they interacted with one another and how they, how they seemed to leverage the science and the scientific ways of knowing um, and of observing the world to make sense of the, the world from a scientific perspective, but also from a social and cultural perspective. And it's mm -hmm. not that long ago at all. Like culture and the brain was not a topic that had been studied. Emotion was very rudimentary. I mean, it was like, let me shine a, you know, flash a snake in your face and see like how your amygdala lights up, right? And I was thinking, you know, I, I, I was thinking a little more nuanced <laughs> version of emotion than like a, a snarling dog drooling in your face and, and your amygdala lighting up. Like I was thinking of something a little more interpersonal, a little more reflective, you know? And That's so, funny. yeah, I know. So uh, the further I got into that, the more I really started to steer my career in that direction. So the work that I do now really integrates um, the humanistic uh, developmental uh, psychological perspectives that I took from education, which is kind of anthropological, developmental, psychological, uh, understanding how people construct cognition and emotion and how they learn on the one hand. And then on the other hand, 
the biological uh, underpinnings of those processes and the ways in which our thoughts and feelings shape our brain development over time, organize our mind, and make our, our thoughts and ourselves and our identities possible. So the work that I do now knits those two perspectives together. That's great. And part of why I was so excited to have, have this conversation with you is because you just sit at, at the sort of intersection of this podcast, right? Part of what the future of SMART is trying to explore is kind of t- exploring issues, telling stories um, of how we would shape learning if we really honored what we knew about human development, neurodiversity, how learning actually happens. Right. So let's, um, let's just start with adolescence because mm-hmm. it feels like it's a deeply misunderstood um, yeah. and underappreciated phase of human development. So tell us a little bit about like, and let's start basic about adolescence. What do people think they know about it? And then what should they know about it based on what the research over the last kind of 10 to 15 years has made clearer to us? Yeah, yeah, I think you're so right. I mean, as uh, I, and let me just be clear that there are many cultures in the world where people don't think of adolescence in this kind of like, uh, you know, a weirdo way. But in our uh, developed nations and Western nations, we we do. We think of adolescence as either immature adults, or sometimes people are coming to appreciate that the the sorts of strange volatility that that we observe in adolescence may actually be advantageous in some way right so it's you know that i know adolescents are risk takers and they make poor decisions and they're emotionally uh labile but uh but maybe they need to be that way in order to be able to break out from their home and go out into the world and forge a path on their own and i just think that is the totally wrong way to think about adolescence um i mean i don't know if you've talked to any adolescents later I, lately i mean i have two of them in my home and right you yeah. know a risk taker does not capture what is going on there right i mean it's like ask a, ask a teenager you know just go take that risk stick your hand up and answer the question you're not sure about in class or you know just go talk to that kid you really have a crush on and ask him out you know like what's the worst thing that's gonna happen right wear that outfit that you got from your grandma's closet when you were you know right from 1960 that you think's cool but nobody else does right? adolescents are not risk takers they are incredibly socially conformist in so many ways but they do they're, they are have an incredibly heightened sense of their own sort of existence. They are extremely sensitive to social and emotional information, and they're developing amazing new cognitive propensities and dispositions to infer broader meaning, what, we, what we're calling transcendent thinking, thinking that transcends the current context. So in adolescence, it's not just about uh, you know, wearing shoes. It's about what your shoes say about who you are and what you believe in and how you think about adults and what kind of music you like and who your friends are and what kind of career you want to have when you grow up. You know, it's all of that is in your shoes, right? They, they are just deep, deep interpreters and meaning makers. And yet they don't have a lot of world experience to be able to rein in those simulations in ways that adults can recognize might be more likely to correspond to reality, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I mean, to me, thinking about adolescents as, as risk takers and as highly emotional, uh, you know, is akin to thinking about preschoolers as being mainly defined by temper tantrums, you know what I mean? And I think to me, the hallmark of adolescence is this just drive 
this existential drive to make meaning out of the world that transcends the current, uh, direct current uh, context. So in other words, making, making a story, a narrative that follows you around in the world, that follows other people around in the world, that you know, that helps us understand why and how and the intentionality and the ethics and the big meaning and ideas behind the things that happen, not just the things that happen and the things that we do directly, which is what mm-hmm. younger children really focus on. And, and that incredible drive is what our schools should be tapping into and helping to constrain and facilitate. Um, and we've seen this in the modern world, the incredible idealism and an incredible uh, 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 energy beyond, behind, um, you know, uh, uh, ethical and, and transformative change for humanity. I mean, our teenagers are visionary, but we're almost scared to let them show us that side of themselves. And yet that is what their development is all about. Hmm. So I want to I want to pause and interject here too that adolescence for many people they think of it as somewhere in the range of 12 to 17 18 but actually the science would say that it ranges until about 25 right so first yeah. of all all this stuff that you were talking about has this really long span but yeah, one of the it's findings a very I think, long developmental period yes with massive and I know there are different phases. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I want to go. Right. Because I think there is this narrative and it's resulted over the last 10 to 15 years in this hyper focus on zero to five as though brain development happens then. And if you've missed the window, if a kid isn't read to every night or doesn't have ideal experiences, (laughs) like it's done. It's too bad. So tell us why that's uh, incomplete (laughs) and tell us why we need to be really understanding the richness of adolescence in oh, ways that you've already and alluded the, to. The potential of adolescence is amazing. So yes, it's true that early childhood is a really important phase of development. There's a lot of change happening. But what we haven't appreciated until more recently, um, in, in part because of the new neuroimaging technologies that have developed over the last decade or so, but we didn't appreciate that there is a major restructuring of the network connectivity, the way the brain is sort of internally structured and organized and dynamically modulating um, states of activity and deactivity in these incredibly organized network patterns, that those are being majorly formed and reworked and matured over the course of a very protracted a period of adolescence that begins, you know, it depends on the child, but it begins, um, you know, you know, in prepubescent uh, years and and is goes until at least the early to mid twenties, right? Um, and what we're seeing is that there's massive re- reorganization of these networks, and in fact, opportunities for such amazing plasticity that we can help young people have the potential to rework um, the, 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 the brain development that they've engaged as younger children into much more adaptive patterns um, across the period of adolescence. Adolescence is both a period of amazing plasticity and potential for development and always the flip side of plasticity and potential, which is, you know, based on the potential for change, the, the, the potential for growth is also an amazing period of vulnerability. This is a period of time developmentally where youth are incredibly dependent on social relationships and cultural learning uh, and emotional experiences to literally organize the way in which they pattern their thoughts and feelings. And those patterns of thoughts and feelings 
our work and other people's is now showing literally appear to be organizing the growth and the structure in the brain that sets them up for mental stability, psychological stability, and intellectual capacity into young adulthood. So it's an amazing missed opportunity uh, if we don't engage in deep, emotionally poignant, socially safe, relevant ways with our young people. So I, I want to transition there into deep learning. You have a recent article that was entitled Building Meaning Builds Teens' Brains, um, and yeah. we'll link it in the notes. But you write, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, the way young people think more than what they know grows right. their brains over time. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about this research and some of your kind of conclusions and findings about how deep learning happens of the kind that you, you've been referencing just now? Yeah. Yeah. I think that research is, it's, it's just, I, I'm still stunned by those data. So we did a longitudinal five-year study of teenagers from, um, you know, low SES, inner city Los Angeles environments. We, you know, we really wanted to study kids who, um, who generally get left out of the research, right? Kids who are uh, living in neighborhoods with high levels of gang violence and crime, but who are from stable, loving families, uh, whatever that family situation looks like. Um, we narrowed the, the, uh, the population in our studies to kids who were not in trouble, not under disciplinary action, not truant with school, right? We're passing all their classes and had at least one parent who had lived uh, to adulthood outside of the United States, which is representative of, a, of a, the large cultural diversity um, that, our, that, that makes up our, our, our teenage population. And we basically sat with those kids, 65 kids, ninth grade or 10th grade, right? Age uh, 14 to 16. And we talked with them about all manner of topics. So we, we interviewed them in depth about the way they understand the social world, um, the way they understand the violence that they've seen, their own possible future selves, who they want to be. And then we also designed a standardized uh, a standardized uh, task for them so that we could compare across kids across time. And that task, what we did was we searched around the world for stories of real teenagers who that were really emotionally compelling in various kinds of ways. And we put together a series of 40, almost mini documentaries about teenagers from around the world. And we shared in one-on-one -on -one interviews, two-hour interviews with each one of these kids, we sat with them and talked to them about each of those stories. So we, you know, a story of Malala in Pakistan, right? When she was 12, for example. We don't use kids' names. We just said, like, here's this girl in this place called Pakistan. Have you ever heard of that place? Well, there's this group called the Taliban, and they don't believe in girls going to school. So let's watch, you know what I mean? And we taught them about it. And then we just said to them, and these are all videotaped interviews, how does this person's story make you feel? And what we find is that kids' answers to that question of how a story makes them feel, they reveal a kind of snapshot of their dispositions toward curiosity, toward engaging with deeper meaning making, toward what we're calling transcendent or abstract thinking, you know, not just reacting only to the girl in Pakistan and saying, oh, poor her, that's terrible, I hope she makes it, right? But kids also spontaneously sort of stepped back and we actually show there's, there's um, reliable sort of closing of posture, closing of eyes, looking up, pausing, slowing of speech, and they think through. And then they come back and they say things like, you know, this is really a powerful story. I never knew that not everybody in the world gets to go to school. I just take my going to school for granted. But I guess 
wow, when I think about it, if you can't have an option to go to school, how could you ever have choices in what kind of life you want to have? Maybe I should be working harder to do something about that. I mean, kids get really worked up about the, the broader, more transcendent general truths that they, that they infer from the stories. And what we find is that kids' propensities to do that, which I'm happy to report all of the kids did at least some, right? The degree to which kids did it was unrelated to their standardized IQ. When kids showed us that they had this deeper drive, this curiosity, this disposition to engage in meaning making around the story that transcended the actual story and started to build out bigger picture for yourself, for the world more generally, the more they did that, the more we saw particular patterns of network connectivity in the brain when we then moved them into the MRI scanner and asked them to think about the stories again and watch those videos again and tell us how they were feeling in real time. And what we found is that when they engaged with those stories and felt deeply emotional about them by their own report, they showed statistically significant systematic patterns of activation and deactivation in executive control networks of the brain. What we then found is that when we brought the kids back two years later and had them just rest in the scanner and relax and think about whatever they want, we could predict the change in a kid's brain network activity and dynamics from wave one, so when they were 14, 15, 16 years old, till two years later, when they were 16, 17, 18 years old, every kid had a two-year lag in there, right? we could predict that the degree to which they had engaged in this kind of disposition for broader thinking predicted the change in their brain network connectivity, even at rest. So we're talking, we're not talking about some kids had some kind of brains and some kids had other kind of brains. We're talking about this kid, Mary Helen's brain at age 15 compared to Mary Helen's brain at age 17 we can predict how Mary Helen will grow and change and develop her brain based on these dispositions of mind at the beginning. That is incredibly powerful because in science, when we can predict the future, that's the holy grail, right? And the real clincher to these findings is that the degree to which kids grew their brain across that two-year lag period in turn predicted how happy they said they were in young adulthood how well they like themselves, how well they like their close relationships, uh, how well they think they're doing in school or work, and how well those opportunities in school or work suit what they always hoped for for themselves. Mm-hmm. So kids were more likely to say, you know, I really know what I stand for. I really, I believe, I know what I believe in. I care deeply about living a purposeful life as compared to saying things like, um, you know, I, I, I just kind of go along with the crowd. I don't really know right from wrong. I just sort of do what everybody else says is good, right? Which we know is very bad for civic, uh, for civic, uh, you know, cohesion in society. It's also bad for mental health and leads to things like anxiety and depression uh, and even early death, right? Lack of purpose is associated with dying. Um, yeah. So what we found is this incredibly profound thing that the way in which young people are are sort of dispositionally engaging with making meaning out of the world above and beyond IQ, SES, is is predicting their brain development and in turn their mental health and happiness. So the question is, how do we support those dispositions in our our educational settings? 
So I, I want to pause here because I definitely want to go into that. But I remember hearing you give a talk to parents and you showed some images of the brain and the yeah. part of the brain that was active in these scans. And I remember two things you said. One, you said it like uses an enormous amount of energy. That's so right. That first. It's the most but metabolically the, expensive in the body. Yeah. yeah. You were like, it was the same size of like a muscle yes. in your thigh if you're running a marathon. Running a marathon, exactly. Yep. Um, I, I, I was listening. And then the <laughs> other thing I remember you saying is that it's also the same part of the brain that is active when kids are quote unquote doing nothing. So yeah. in other words, kind of daydreaming and whatever. And I just want to hook that to what are the kinds of experiences right. that we would be creating for young people to engage in this kind of learning? So the brain networks that we are, that we're talking about here are not small little, you know, spots here or there, right? It's the first thing to notice. They're huge huge swaths of connectivity of, of networks that involve many regions of the brain that are sort of concertedly organizing themselves to cross talk with each other. When people are not in a, what neuroscientists have called quote unquote task dependent state. So in other words, but I think that's misleading for educators because it suggests that deep thinking is not a task, <laughs> but it's more like a stimulus independent thinking state. So in other words, what we see these brain networks become active, and there's hundreds of hundreds of studies showing this, not, not just ours. We see these brain networks become active when people are not having to kind of move their physical body in a coordinated way in space and time. One, two, three, all eyes on me, move your pencil on the paper, crank out the work. You know, these are the regions of the brain that come online almost spontaneously when you are sitting quietly without things to react to in the immediate world and, and sort of daydreaming, reflecting, and also thinking deeply about complex ideas. Basically, these are the networks in the brain that are um, fundamental for thinking about things that you can't directly observe in the here and now is kind of how I think about it. But if I admire this, the, the, the capacities of, a, say, a civil rights leader or someone who's incredibly brave and stands up for justice, right, those kinds of ideas, you can't see why you should admire that person by just watching them walk down the middle of the street, right? It's the, it's the, the whole historical context. It's the possible future space. It's the, it's the, uh, the qualitative, you know, sort of character characteristics of, of, of character and mind that you have to really build a full story about before you can truly appreciate why you should admire this person, right? Those kinds of inner focused meaning making that are by definition impossible to do when you are focused on completing an instrumental task in the moment or attending to something very, uh, you know, uh, uh, attention grabbing in the moment. It's these inner sort of free form kinds of thoughts that are associated both with a kind of internal narrative that becomes a sense of identity, of historical context, of possible futures, right? All of these things that go together to make belonging, to make dreams and hopes and a sense of purpose. And so much of our education is focused on productivity in the here and now and sort of concrete outputs. But what we really need to do is help kids move themselves between concrete outputs, which are essential. If you don't dig in and get anything done or learn any factual stuff here and now or how to do stuff, you can't have any tools to richly think about big ideas, right? 
but it's a balance. I think about the brain kind of like a seesaw. Um, where if you imagine, you know, take one arm and put your fist in the middle of it underneath and support your forearm of one arm with your fist of the other hand, if you think of the fist that's doing the supporting underneath as the kind of physiological feeling of your own arousal, of your own consciousness, of your own being alive and awake, literally the brain systems that digest, you know, that feel how you're digesting your lunch and how your heart's pounding and all that are the pivot of the seesaw. And then if you tip one direction, you know, down to your fist, what you're doing is kind of tipping yourself into attention in the world and action and engaging your body, getting things done, listening to other people, paying attention to what's around you. And then tipping back the other way is this kind of deeper reflective state where you're constructing a narrative or a feeling state or a level of understanding or of wondering that transcends the current context. That's meaning that cannot be directly observed and measured in the current context, but it's something broader that pertains across context. And what we, what we find in our experiments is that the role of the coordination between the networks that do the outwardly focused work and the inwardly focused work what I call looking out and looking in, that it's those coordinations of networks and of ways of thinking that really produce both growth and deep learning. Um, and so what we, what we really often do is kind of tip ourselves in one direction, but we need kids to find the executive capacity to notice when it's time to step back and reflect, and then time to replan and dig back in. And the balance and the, the act of tipping yourself back and forth is what is probably doing the work of growing psychological stability and knowledge over time. So let me, I, I'm literally constructing this as we're talking, but, <laughs> uh, but maybe that'll be helpful for people who are listening, because I'm listening to you and thinking, gosh, you know, when kids are young, I used to teach elementary and early childhood. So a yeah. large part of that was, let's, let's connect you to ideas. Let's help you see and learn lots of things about lots of things, because they are connected and they're the sort of like foundations, right, for being able to think. But then as we get older and in, your, in the period that you're talking about, in a sense, it matters less the content that you're using to access and build this connectivity between the regions of the brain. So if I'm a child, if I'm a student and it's Malala's story that's really important to me, or from a cultural standpoint, my own family's Indian yeah. East African background right, or something, right. that I can mm -hmm. access that knowledge and use it to start building these networks. And once I build the networks, I'm building the capacity to think deeply about other things. And so that's right what we now think it is feels going like on. we. Right now, it feels like we're covering lots of content, but not and having debates about how much content and how much more content, mm -hmm. and which content is important and not, and yeah. not enough time on the process. But if we focused on the process, we're actually enabling young people to develop the skills that they need to kind of do that tipping back and forth with all of the new information that they're going to keep learning. H how does that exactly. land for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And just to be clear, though, this doesn't mean that content is 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 a waste of time or irrelevant, right? You need to have skills and dispositions, and you need to have things to think about, rich problems that are worth spending time really deeply delving into, and procedures and facts and information that can give you the fodder to build deep thoughts and ideas. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do in education is attend more to more strategically to setting up the need that kids bring 
to a content area so that they mm-hmm. have a kind of disposition for curiosity and for looking for the meaning. And then the content and the skills and the procedures you need to learn to be able to really deeply engage with the kind of meaning making they're driven to do, they are hungry for, they're motivated toward because they need it in order to make sense of what they want deeply to understand. The process of constructing this broader understanding of gaining insight into something something really that feels very important about the world is a deeply empowering feeling to humans. We love to understand things and building dispositions and tolerances for the process of dealing with uncertainty, for managing one's information gathering process, for not settling too quickly on an answer, right? And instead trying to deeply engage with the broader context and the the sort of transcendent issues that come up when we learn complex, interesting information. Those dispositions are where school really needs to focus. Sure. Content and process don't need to be mutually exclusive. It's always a both and. But the reason I ask, Mary Helen, is that the kinds of schools you're describing are schools that I think of as taking more human-centered orientation to their work. And many times people will look at those schools and they'll say, well, they aren't covering as much content, right? They don't have AP classes, But we're living in a world right now where the amount of content we could cover, even if we made that the primary focus of school, is more than anyone could handle. And so whether we like it or not, there is a question of how much we can ask young people and educational programs to cram into the limited amount of time that kids are in formal education. It feels like we need to take these issues head on, that balance between content coverage of how much of that content needs to be the same for every student versus a focus on skill building, like helping people learn how to engage with the content they're learning, everything you're talking about. The factory model of dumping knowledge into kids is faster, so it may be quote unquote more efficient than the time that's required when we're trying to do inquiry-based pedagogies, right, where students may go on tangents or take longer to get through content. Like even the process you were talking about with the experiments you did, like sitting with a young person and giving them a story and giving them a chance to reflect and share their reactions with you, that took time, right? And depending on what you think the purpose of education is, that could be time, quote unquote, off task, as opposed to it's actually time on task, given what we want education to be about. Um, And so I think that's the reason to think about content versus process. Those of us who work in education and think about outcomes and think about assessment and evaluation and accountability have to be thinking about and answering the question of what the right balance is between the two at different points in students' development. So um, I have two directions I want to go. The first is measuring impact, right? So, I mean, the question of what do we assess? How do we assess it? How do you hold the public education system accountable? The implications of your research for how we should be defining quality education. How would we be defining and measuring the impact and the outcomes of learning for young people? So we really want to, what I think we need to do, and there are models in the world for doing this well, but they're very very much at odds with the implicit kind of um, uh, assumptions and beliefs that the American mainstream public including teachers hold about what it means to know something and what it means to be quote unquote educated. Right. But there are models of this in the world, including in the U S but also in other places. 
Um, I think what we really need to do, and I'm not the only person saying this by any means, is focus much more on assessing the, 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 the environment for learning rather than the kids themselves. So we really need to look at the ways in which curriculum, school contexts, school cultures, community engagement in, in the schooling process, and young people's engagement in the values and beliefs that grow them how those dimensions of the system are, are orchestrated, are organized, are designed to facilitate and support young people engaging deeply with thinking. So that's the first thing that we really need to find much better ways to assess and focus on. And then the second thing is the teachers themselves, and this is a big lift, I understand this, but I think this is where we need to go. The teachers themselves need to really have opportunities to deeply engage with and understand what it is we're aiming for in, in high quality, complex dispositions for thinking in particular domains. What does deep thinking look like in mathematics? What does deep thinking look like in the sciences? What does it look like in literature and the arts? What does it look like in history or social studies? And what are we looking for in our young people as they engage with thinking in these domains? And how can we learn to help young people engage with the process of, of growing themselves through these patterns and dispositions of mind? So the content is really important, but the content is not the end goal. And semantic memory for content and procedures is only a, a stepping stone to what you really want to be going for. We, we, we cut ourselves off at the knees. We stop short of, of assessing what really matters, which is how young people learn to think and the dispositions of civic and intellectual and personal engagement that they infer and build, the habits of mind that they build through the educational opportunities we give them. We need to spend much more attention on assessing and understanding those ways of thinking and being um, and understand that the quote unquote learning outcomes are really not outcomes. And this is a very communal effort for teachers, right? It's, it's an effort that involves the kids themselves, possibly the kids' families and community members, experts from the communities to really think about the process that a young person or a group of young people have engaged in as they engaged with deep thinking around a particular kind of problem or a particular piece of work and looking much more at assessing process and less at assessing the endpoint because the endpoint's important, but only in so far as it represents the culmination of a process that was developmentally rich and appropriate. So the point of schooling is not to learn, in other words. The point of schooling is to develop yourself. You have to learn things along the way in order to have something to develop around. But the learning is not the end goal. Hmm. And I mean, everything you've said, I can see it applying to both the middle and the high school context, but it seems it would also have really important implications for young people as they move into the post-secondary world or work and workforce development as well. Yeah. I mean, in here, this is obvious to say, but the deep irony is that the way that we educate our young people, even, and I would say even especially sometimes, the very high performing school districts and kids 
does not serve them well when they get out into the workforce, right? They don't know how to collaborate, say their bosses. They don't know how to figure things out for themselves and to be self-motivated and self-directed. They wait for tasks to come at them and they expect a whole lot of praise and feedback to be able to keep going. They're very extrinsically motivated, right? This It's not like what we're doing well now actually serves us well as adults, there. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the question of what's driving what, right? So a real rich um, question, problem, task can then drive the content acquisition because it's purposeful as opposed to, we just learn it to learn it and just sit down now and shut up. And at some point you'll do real work with it. Exactly. Which is totally backwards from a cultural (laughs) learning perspective. It's it's completely backwards. You know, let's say that's the workforce is the soccer team, right? So we look at what it takes to be a really good soccer player. Okay. They need to have really strong legs. They need to be able to kick the ball. They need to understand the rules of the game, blah, blah, blah. Right. Okay, great. So then we say, okay, well, how are we going to prepare kids for that? Okay, strong legs. Okay, the most efficient way to build up strong legs, get on the weightlifting machine and start pumping iron, right? Okay, you need to understand the rules of the game. Okay, sit down in chairs. We're going to list them out. A, you hit the ball with your feet, not your hands. Okay, B, right? And then we're like, okay, good. You're ready to play soccer. And they don't know what to do when they get on the field, right? As compared to playing the game, engaging in the game, and then stopping and saying, wait a minute, I can see that as you're playing, your left leg would do, you would do a lot better if your left leg were stronger. You're, you're favoring one over the other. Let's step back and use some weight machines for a while to catch you up and then build that back into the game. Okay. You hit the ball with your hand. That's not allowed. Let's step back and review the rules. And now let's re-engage and do it in action again. Right. It's, we decontextualize the skills and the knowledge so much, which is basically another way to say what I said before. We, we focus on the semantic and the procedural memory building at the expense of the episodic structure in which those memories are sort of recalled, used, integrated into a bigger purpose. And so, you know, so much of the learning sciences, this kind of gets around to what to fund too. So much of the learning sciences has produced really reliable, rigorous science that, but that it focuses on a very tiny piece of what it means to learn or to be educated, which is recall, retrieval, you know, sort of quote unquote, mastering content in a very narrow, specific sense without attending to what is much harder to measure and much harder to design for, but absolutely critical, which is what counts as worth learning? How do you know the person understands it? How do you get them motivated to engage with it deeply? And then really important. How does that all come together into this deeper understanding that we would call expertise within a domain that then sets you up to go out and use this in a new setting? And those are the really hard problems that we really have to grapple with in the learning sciences right now. And so you mentioned this. So what does that mean? A lot of the folks listening to this are education funders in the learning sciences, in pre-K and K-12 and higher ed and post-secondary. So what do we need to be funding? I think of this as kind of the infrastructure investments, right? To kind of like get to the system that we want. Where are the, where are the needs? Um, What is it that funders should be? And again, not that you don't fund anything that you're currently funding, but what else would we be funding if we cared about the 20 year direction of our, of our educational experiences for young people? Yeah, that's right. We can't just keep firefighting right here, right now. Don't get me wrong. So, uh, you know, firefighting now is important. You want to put fires out, right? But it's not enough. Um, And so we need to have, I think, kind of a parallel visions 
for the way in which funding is is sort of organized. On the one hand, funding around programming, opportunity providing, you know, those kinds of direct services that people need now, that's essential. We have to fund those things. On the other hand, funding only those things, which are very short-term, which have to produce impacts right here, right now, is very short-sighted and will never get us to a really, truly reformed system over time. Because why? Because really reforming the problem of, of our current education system and modernizing it to suit the current globalized economy and world is about deeply engaging with the implicit assumptions and beliefs that we as a society bring about what it means to be smart, right? Like you really talked about this in your book, right? What it means to be smart, what it means to be accomplished, how we engage with each other in civic uh, ethical ways, how we think about the nature of our governmental systems, our democracies, our communities, right? Those are the essential problems and there are no right answers. We need to be set up to start to construct answers together over time as the problem space itself evolves and changes in ways that we can't even foresee. And so in parallel with funding, uh, you know, programming and services and, and also funding, um, uh, uh, efforts and initiatives to deconstruct uh, current institutional um, you know, structures that are directly undermining equity, achievement, wellness. We also need to fund what I'm calling a, a new approach to uh, the human developmental sciences of, of, of learning and, 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 and education. We need to have a much deeper basic understanding of the ways in which educational opportunities actually engage young people in patterns and teachers in patterns of thinking and feeling that grow their brains and their minds over time. In the current context, we really have a kind of fractionated set of scientific disciplines that have small insights to, to give around this problem space. But what we need to do is build out a truly transdisciplinary science. And I choose that word very, I know it's the cool hit word right now, but I really choose it very mindfully to mean the, the, the level of explanation that transcends any one particular academic tradition for study and instead starts to understand the holistic dynamics, the humanistic dynamics of the people around which the system needs to revolve. The patterns of thoughts and feelings, the ways in which ideas are generated and engaged with emotionally, cognitively, culturally. We need to understand how those patterns emerge from opportunities that are structured and provided by schools. We really don't understand that process, but we also need to generate the new, very new kind of basic science. It's a much more uh, culturally inclusive science. It's a much more dynamic humanistic science. And it is a fundamentally interdisciplinary modern science about the ways that people think and learn and grow and develop biologically, culturally, socially, cognitively, emotionally in the current world. And so until we really start to build out that science in a systematic way, we're going to be firefighting forever, right? With small programs that fix this or that and help 200 or 500 or 10,000 kids, but that never change the basic disposition of the system. 
So how should we be thinking about equity in all of this? For the last two decades, um, the push has been to give more kids, especially kids from less privileged backgrounds, access to the kinds of schools we consider to be the best in a more conventional way. So lots of content coverage, lots of AB classes, that sort of thing. Some people feel very strongly that that's what equity entails. What do you think? We really also need to step back and ask ourselves, equitable access to what? Right. What is it that we really want for our young people, for the future keepers of our world? How is it that we want them to come from the education system thinking and feeling about their own role in promoting and sustaining a just and, and beneficent you know, social order and, and, and global economy and an and ecological you know, planetary health? And so, so often we, we automatically assume that the quote unquote high performers in the current system are the things we should be aiming for, for everybody. But if those quote unquote high performers are not setting up the kids coming out of there to dispositionally engage with building a better world for everyone, then the ways in which they're learning isn't really what we want for anyone. So it's really a problem that's distributed across the strata of society to think that what we really need to aim for here is to give all kids the opportunities that right now only a very elite few have, I think is, is wrong, wrongheaded. We actually want to give all kids something different so that they, there are some kids who are getting something great now, don't get me wrong, but like the right. traditional high performing kind of high school model isn't actually generating citizens with dispositions to break down these inequities, to understand the social and historical contexts in which they're thinking and working over time. In fact, it's doing the opposite. Very often it's setting young people up to perpetuate and recapitulate the same injustices and inequities that led us into the, the deep troubled social state that we're in now. So it's not just about helping everybody get what right now is currently valued in the system. It's actually about learning how to value something different and working together as a society to construct our own and reconstruct our own dispositions, beliefs around what we really want for our society, for our young people. And then how would we build education for everyone that gives them a voice and, and, and a, sen a set of um, opportunities and a sense of agency in that space. So it's yeah. really not about ignoring the high, quote unquote, high performing standard achievers. It's about also reforming what they get so that they become much more deeply dis disposed and to engage deeply with the ways in which their own knowledge structures and beliefs and values may be inadvertently perpetuating structures that are bad for many, many people. You mentioned progressive schools earlier, and I, I agree with you that they're often providing the kind of education that all kids should be getting because it's I think it's what they need to build a better world and to be prepared for the world that they're going into. But it's been difficult for those kinds of programs to get a foothold in the public system because we defined high-performing as being the best version of a more conventional orientation. So high test scores, high four-year college acceptances. And that drove pedagogy and practice in a direction that was very different than everything we've been discussing. 
which I suppose goes back to what we discussed earlier about what we would be assessing and holding schools and systems accountable for. So what I think is we really need to also deep dive into understanding how really beneficial, progressive, successful models of education, wherever we can find them, how those models function, how they impact youth development and thinking, and then how we can extract learnings from those that can then be, you know, the the sort of jumping off point for reinventing adaptations and other kinds of um, innovative ways forward across the board for, for everybody. And so we need to look wherever we find these dispositions. And unfortunately, given the way that our social uh, world is structured right now, you tend to find them in, in one of two places. You tend to find them mainly either with highly privileged young people whose families can afford because of the kind of social capital they bring, who can afford to take a risk and let their children be engaged in a really, uh, you know, non-traditional model. Um, or you find them in, frankly, the, the extremely most severely underprivileged young people's education systems, because there again, we kind of let, I mean, if you can just keep these kids out of prison and in a school building, like whatever you're doing is okay with us kind of thing. And you can also find some very innovative models in those spaces. In between, you tend to get sort of a fear, which I, I understand. I have young yeah, children also, right? You get a kind of fear of letting go of the traditional because we're worried that if we take a risk and really focus on developing the young people as compared to achieving a certain set of metrics, then we could be inadvertently setting them up uh, to uh, not have opportunity later. And we need to really deconstruct what it means to be able to have access to opportunity. That feels like a great place to stop. So Mary Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the really important work you're doing. Thank you. And to, to you too, Olka, and to all the, all the people listening. I mean, you guys are the ones who are making it happen. So thank you. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.